Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. If you have a Bible, you can open with me to the book of Genesis. Uh, I would love for you to follow along with the digital sermon card today. Uh, I'm going to throw a lot at you. A lot of content's going to come at you. And uh, we tried to, in the smallest little font, get that onto one digital card. Uh, that's available at uh, many different ways. You can find that on Instagram. If you guys would go back just for a moment to that QR code. Thank you, Kat. Um, that QR code, you can pull up uh, the digital sermon card there. Or if for some reason it's not coming up from where you're at, you can go straight to our website and it'll be there as well. I do want to remind you about Sunday Q&A and the seat back in front of you are little cards. I would imagine not just today, but the next two weeks, I'm going to preach today and next Sunday uh, to kind of build some continuity. A lot of questions that will come up as it relates to our content. And so feel free, as always, to make sure you submit those either online or to our, our, our next steps table uh, out in the lobby. Today, we're talking about sexual wholeness, about sexual wholeness and what it means to be free from sexual baggage, sexual wholeness. It's an important topic for us that we need to wrestle with faithfully. And I want to tell you from the very beginning today, church, that uh, there's going to be a lot that I'm going to be presenting to you. And so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I really think you're going to need to listen to this message at some point later this week, uh, or maybe even the next week as well. And so there's a lot that's going to come at you, a lot to engage, a lot to think through. Uh, It's great that this is a Connect Group Sunday because this is an opportunity for us to begin to engage and talk about such things. And, uh, you know, it's my thought that maybe we need to even develop some of what I'm going to share today into a series by itself. So over the next few weeks, this is all about marriage and relationships. So you're going to hit parenting and marriage. We could do eight, ten weeks just on sexual wholeness, right? Just the issues around sexual wholeness. And so maybe as we move forward uh, we will because it's that important for our discipleship and it's that important for our, our formation in Jesus Christ. So Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. I'm going to read through verse 25. Genesis 2, verse 19 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to, notice this, <clears throat> he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, the wild animals. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. So the Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. Y'all, I hope hope he has some good anesthesia for that there, right? And then he closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man and said, this is now bone of my bone. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woe man, for out of woman, or out of man, I should say, she is taken. And then Jesus would later quote this in Matthew and Luke. God says in Genesis 2, verse 24, and this is why, notice the why now, a man leaves his father and mother and is cleaved or united, bonded to his wife, and they together become one flesh. And then verse 25, and verse 25 is really my my impetus for all of today. It's what I want to focus on. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt zero shame. Adam and Eve were naked and felt no shame. No shame. Let me just say to you, church, this is what God invites all of us to as humanity to live with a sense of nakedness and have zero shame about that nakedness. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to lead us as we move into this text. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you already for all the ways you've already met us in our gathering today. And now I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds. You would give us eyes to see. You would give us ears to hear and a heart to receive every gift you have for us this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Let me begin this message today by saying that all of us, 
need to broaden our understanding on what it means to be sexual beings. We all need to start with a broadening of our mindsets on what it means to be a sexual being. When we think of sexuality, particularly here in the West, we have a narrow set of images, a narrow set of words that come to mind. But I want to help you kind of understand and expand your understanding of this really important topic. And in order to do so, I'm going to show you a video that on the surface might not seem like it has anything to do related to sexuality, but it actually has everything to do with sexuality. Because sexuality is this, are you ready? It's our deep desire and longing for connection. That's what sexuality is, a deep desire and longing. At its core, our sexuality is a deep desire and longing for connection. So what I want to do, I want to show you a beautiful video that gives you a big perspective picture on what sexuality is and how we're going to define it today. And then what I want to do is I want to come back and narrow it down to some of the specifics of what it means for us to view our bodies, to look at our bodies, to engage with another person's body. All right? So let's watch this video. It's about four minutes. Check this out. Check this out. Four minutes of uninterrupted silence staring at a human who means everything to you. Now, now you watch that video, and some of you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with sexuality? That tells you where we've gone wrong. One of the challenges in Western society in our culture is we have so reduced sexuality to an act of intercourse, which makes it so then difficult to really engage how vast the topic of human sexuality actually is. I've found the definitions of Deborah Hirsch. Deborah Hirsch wrote an amazing book, a wonder, wonderful author on spirituality and sexuality. I think this is the starting point of what it means to actually connect to God and connect to one another. Next slide. Spirituality, she says, can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to probe, and to understand our world. Beyond that, it is the inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other that is God. Essentially, Deb says, it is a longing to know and to be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. So what is spirituality? Deb says it's a deep, deep desire to know God and to be known by God. Now, she juxtaposes that with the definition of sexuality. Sexuality, she says, can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond our own selves in an attempt to connect with, understand that which is other than ourselves. Especially, essentially, she said it's a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. Now, if that, my friends, is the starting point for sexuality, the video you and I just saw makes all of the sense in the world because sexuality is the energy that pulls us to other people's faces. It's the energy that pulls us to other human beings. And this is where any true biblical conversation on sexuality has to begin. And then once we get that established, then we can narrow it down to the specifics of it. Now today, we're not going to be able to talk about all of the nuances of sexuality. I hope to do that maybe this summer in the near future. But today's message will give us a big picture message on what it means to follow Jesus and to take our sexuality seriously. Now, any talk on sexuality in the church is similar to addressing matters of racism and politics. Like we just don't want to talk about it. And for many different reasons. Think about just for a moment how we are formed in our American households. Think about your own experience. What kind of training, what kind of coaching, what kind of formation did you receive from your mom and dad in the area of sexuality? Was sex and sexuality a topic of discussion in your home that was serious, that was engaged with sobriety, that was something that we talked about, that we engaged? Was it avoided like the plague? Was it something that was outsourced to educators? Was it, out educated, was it outsourced to a public education school system? See, these are good questions, friend, because not just for our own reflection as it relates to our own households, but for the church as well. Because the church has so often reflected a lack of formation in the area of, of spiritual and sexual engagement, right? 
Either the church has been silent on the matter, or the church has been increasingly awkward on this matter, or the church has been so judgmental on this matter that we've not had an opportunity to have mature Jesus-oriented conversations around our bodies, around what it means to connect with others, around human sexuality. You say, Craig, what else complicates all this? Well, what else complicates this is that many of us in this room, we live with a great deal of shame as it relates to our bodies. We live with a lot of shame as it relates to connecting to others. Some of that shame has emerged from our own sin, our own exposure to wrong things. Some of that uh, shame has emerged from what people have done to our bodies at a young age, what people did to take advantage of our bodies. And as a result, what happens is each year we live, we have a harder time navigating through this space. And so what we have now is a lack of spiritual formation, a lack of discipleship, a lack of good teaching. And there are kind of two images that come to mind when that distill, if you will, the lack of training, formation, discipleship that we received in this area. Just one author, amazing author, by the name of Christopher West, he helped to describe American sexuality in two diets. He calls it two diets, in particular, that impact our lives and impact the surrounding world. First diet is known as the starvation diet. You're going to see an image behind me. The starvation diet is a diet that has found its way into the church. What is the starvation diet in human sexuality? It's a diet marked by repression and suppression. There is no emotional capacity to talk about our bodies in the church. There is no capacity to talk about our longings in the church. There's no capacity to talk about our passions within the church, to talk about our deep desire for connection for others. And because there's so much shame wrapped around our bodies and so much shame wrapped around the conversation of sexuality, what happens is people actually begin to repress and suppress it. They repress it, they starve it. But inevitably, church, what begins to happen is this. If you suppress and repress at some point in your life, you're going to act out, which is the number one reason why there's so many secrets in the church. The starvation diet has ripened us for a disaster culturally. So we've repressed and we've suppressed. There's so many things that in the last hundred years have come to light in the church because we've not received enough good theology and not good enough. We've not normalized talking about sex within the church. Listen to me, human sexuality should be as normal in the church as it is talking about prayer. It's what it means to be made in God's image, to desire and connection for another human being. And we've not normalized that. We should be able to talk about sexuality, but because we've lacked all of this, we suppress it and we repress it, then we act out. It's a starvation diet. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we have what is known as the fast food diet. The fast food diet. So if the starvation diet is marked by repression, the fast food diet is marked by reduction. And what I mean by reduction is we say, listen, all of our longings are to be met whenever we want, whatever we desire. All of our passions should be fulfilled in any way we desire them to be fulfilled. And we can actually get them done now. So the culture says, does it feel right? We say, yes. Culture says, go for it. Culture says, does this act of sexual union with another person, does it fulfill you? Yes, then go for it. And so there's no discernment with this diet. This, this diet lacks all discernment. We're driven by our passions. We're driven by our longings. We're not actually led by them. We're driven by them. There's no discernment around this diet. And so whether it's starvation diet or whether it's fast food diet, both of those offer a very immature way of thinking about our bodies, thinking about sexuality. What we are invited to, brothers and sisters, is to reject the starvation diet and to reject the fast food diet and to live a life marked by sexual wholeness that is free from sexual baggage. I want to offer to you a definition you'll see on the screen for sexual wholeness, very intentional. Let's explore for a moment. Sexual wholeness is the prayerful integration, prayerful integration of our spirituality and our sexuality that results in deep, satisfying relationships with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and leads to healthy bonding. Now, now notice that definition. It's the best one I've come across and I think provides such a framework. Every word, very intentional. Prayerful integration of our spirituality and our sexuality that results in deep, satisfying relationships 
with others that roots out shame, cultivates vulnerability, and leads to healthy bonding. Now look at me, church. We will never achieve sexual wholeness to perfection in this lifetime. But by the grace of God, all of us can take the next step in our discipleship. All of us can take the next step in our formation. And to that end, I want to look at Genesis chapter 2 to get some theology around how we think about our bodies. We go to the big book of Genesis, church, especially the first few chapters, to address most of the issues in American society. Did you know this? Have you thought about this? The same is true when we talk about sexual wholeness. In Genesis, it says that God created humanity in his own image. God created Adam and Eve in his image. And, and, and to be made in the image of God, excuse me, means at least one thing, that we are made for a relationship. We were made for intimacy. We were made for bonds of connection. Why? Because we confess that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians confess God is Father, Son, and Spirit. That is God's very essence. And God is one God, but in God's essence, God is a communion and God is a community of love. As Christians for 2,000 years, we have confessed that the Holy Trinity exists in an unending circle of love, an unending circle of relational connectivity. So to be made in the image of God, brothers and sisters, means that we are created to exist within a circle of divine love with God and with one another. So when the writer of Genesis describes this, this, this couple, Adam and Eve, it's very interesting to see the words that he chose. There are two words that give us a picture of God's intention to live within that circle of love. So when the writer of Genesis says and describes this couple, he says, verse 25, they were both naked and not ashamed. Now, naked and unashamed, these words describe their relationship to God and the relationship to one another. They live vulnerable lives and they carry no shame, no sense of inadequacy, no need to cover up, no need to hide. They are naked and unashamed. Now, listen to me. We have to know theologically that these are words not just for married people. How many of you have only heard these phrases within the context of married people, as if naked and unashamed is only to define the marriage relationship? No, 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 no. These are the words God wants to describe all of humanity. To live a life that is naked and unashamed, and the word naked is not talking about clothing. The word naked is talking about connection. We were made for a particular life of vulnerability and connectedness. We were made to connect deeply with one another, and we long for it to be naked and unashamed applies to our friendships. We should be naked and unashamed in our parenting. We should be naked and unashamed in our connect groups. We should be naked and unashamed with brothers and sisters in Christ. These words are to describe any human relationship. Naked and ashamed are the ones that applies in God's intention for us. But then something happens in the story, as you know. They rebel. They do their own thing. They want to be God on their own terms, and they sin. They eat from the tree they should not have eaten from. And what happens? There's an immediate change. Sin and shame enter the world, and now their lives are marked by hiding. Now their lives are marked by estrangement. Now their lives are marked by sin. Now, when we look at this story... It's a story that, <coughs> excuse me, all of us know, whether <coughs> Christian or unchristian. It's a story that many of us know, but what I want to do for our time together is I want to explore three theological truths out of those first chapters of Genesis, and then I want to draw out some implications that we can consider for our sexual wholeness. Here's the first theological truth I want to explore. Number one, sexuality is part of God's good creation. Now, this is so important. It seems so simple to say this, but the way we talk about sexuality, especially in the church, makes it feel like sexuality came after sin. Human desire for sex came before sin. It is not a result of sin and shame. It is a part of God's good creation. But what happened? This part of, of, of our human connection, this part of the sinful world, we treat it now like it's sin. How do I know this? Because to talk about this topic is done in hushed terms. But if it's something good, you don't need to hush around it. You actually don't need to whisper around it at all. You need to know no whispering words around it. We talk in whispers, and many of us, our parents were raised in whispers. 
Now, because of the result of the sexual revolution, we are so confused. You need to hear from me, from week one, sexuality is part of God's good creation. Now, Satan has twisted it, Satan has perverted it, but this is part of God's good creation, and it's something we have to maintain and hold on to. God is the creator of sexuality. God is the creator of sexual intimacy. That's the first thing we have to say. Second truth, theologically, we have to hold to. There is a distinction between genital sexuality and sexual sociality in Genesis. Now, I'm relying heavily upon church theologians for 2,000 years. There's a distinction between genital sexuality and social sexuality. The desire that we were made for human connection, human beings were made to connect with other people. There's a longing we saw in that definition from Hirsch to know and to be known by others. And whether this happens in the workplace, whether this happens in the church, whether this happens in the playground, we all have a social sexuality. Reminds me of a story of a friend a few years ago. He had a young boy, five years old at the time. His dad took him to the playground. Had a great time at the playground with his new friend. The next day, he goes to his dad. And he said, Dad, can we go back to the same playground today? He said, yes, yeah, son, we can go back to the same playground. He said, sure. And he said, Daddy, I need to wear the same shirt that I wore yesterday. And his dad looked at him and thought, why in the world would you need to wear the same shirt you wore yesterday to the playground today? And he, this is how his son thought about it. He said to his dad, he said, Dad, because if I see my friend again, if I don't have on the same shirt, he won't remember me. Now, that's a cute story, but that is social sexuality defined. Every human has a desire for social sexuality, has a deep, deep desire for human connectivity. And a five-year-old is already inferring I had so much joy in the engagement yesterday. If I don't wear the same shirt, he won't remember me. He won't be able to engage with my life, with my heart again. This is social sexuality, the desire to connect with others. Now, whether we're talking about the playground, whether we're talking about church, whether we're talking about whatever, this social sexuality matters. But there's also a second kind of sexuality in the scriptures, and that's called genital sexuality. And what genital sexuality is, is in Genesis chapter 2, God establishes a means of covenant love whereby he says a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And what this new family unit now is going to be marked by a covenantal sign of genital union. Now, what's amazing about this particular passage of Scripture is we see belonging taking on a particular form and through the act of sexual intimacy with another, we express with our bodies. So watch this, church. The full covenant love and union that we give expression to in this powerful and creative act where we offer ourselves to another, sex is all about self-giving love. And so listen to me, hear me very carefully. Genital sexuality is not simply about two bodies colliding with each other nude. It's an act of self-loving, notice this, self-giving love, mutually indwelling love that points to something beyond ourselves. And it's why this kind of love and this kind of communication requires a powerful and nurturing safeguard around it. It has been given so much power by God, he had to create a context in which it cannot be destroyed. And the only context that can keep it holy is covenantal marriage between husband and wife. It is such a fire, and God made it a fire. God made sexual intercourse an absolute fire, and it is such a powerful force that it requires a context strong enough to protect it, and that's marriage. We'll get back to that in a moment, especially when we start talking about gender realities and homosexuality. Third truth in Genesis chapter two is that we see shame is a force that we have to regularly, almost daily contend with. Shame is a force that we have to consistently contend with. Now look again at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were unashamed. So here we have humanity living in its greatest freedom and its greatest joy. Their love for one another is free from body shaming free from comparison, free from objectification. There's a fundamental unity between Adam and Eve and their God, the surrounding creation and their bodies. But when sin enters the world, they're marked by shame. There's a wonderful book, by the way, 
called The Soul of Shame by a doctor uh, by the name of Dr. Kurt Thompson. And he argues that it is easier to talk about what shame does to us than defining shame. And here's what he says shame does. He says shame does this to us. It is a response in our brain and our body that leads me to turn away from you while at the same time internalizing particular messages like I am bad. It's not that I just did a bad thing. It's my fundamental identity. I'm bad. I'm worthless. I'm no good. And that's how he says, Kurt Thompson says, you describe shame. It's, watch this, turning away from another human being's face and internalizing a message that I'm not worth it. I'm bad. And this is something that all of us deal with to varying degrees at different points and different weeks and different months, right? Just a few days ago, I'm with my wife. We're having a conversation. Mary and I are mentioning something, talking to one another. And I said something. She responded with a question that was very incisive question. And the question revealed something in me that maybe I didn't say what I should have said correctly to another person. And in that moment, you know what hit me instantly from the top of my head to the bottom of my soles and my feet? Shame. And you know what? Everything inside of me did right there. Everything inside of me told me, started attacking my brain and told me, start pulling away from her, turn your face away from her, don't look at her, pull away and start speaking negative self-speech to yourself. I'm wrong. I've done something wrong. I've said something wrong. What in the world's wrong with me? And you know what I did in that moment? I'm, I'm thinking about this message today. I'm thinking about how I'm going to define Kurt Thompson, define shame. And so in that moment, even though it's not uncomfortable, or even though it's not comfortable, I turn to her. Even when shame says turn away, I turn to. And when I do, I internalize not the message that I'm bad and that I'm wrong. No, I move closer to her in that moment. And was everything resolved because I did that? No, but it is so much better than turning away. Why? Because all of us, many of us actually in this room, probably to a daily basis deal with varying degrees and varying levels of shame. And God is calling us and inviting us into a kind of freedom that he wants us to experience. Now watch this. If those three truths we find theologically in Genesis, the question then becomes, what does it mean for us, dwelling place, to be a community that's committed to freedom from sexual baggage? committed to sexual wholeness? What does it look like for me individually? And what does it look like for you who are single? And then what does it look like for you who are in your 20s? For those that are in their 70s, what does it mean to be sexual whole beings? What does it mean for people in their 50s to be sexually whole beings? I'm going to give you seven implications. What does it mean for us? How do we live our lives committed to this? Seven statements I want to offer and I'm going to tell you again, you're going to have to listen to this later in the week again and God's by God's grace, hopefully We'll, we'll offer something even longer in the months to come. First of all, to be a community committed to sexual wholeness means that there's a recognition that all of us are sexually broken. All of us. Every single one of us in this room, every single one of you that's streaming live, every single one of you that will listen to this podcast, we are all sexually broken. One of the reasons I love the Bible church is the Bible does not shy away from telling stories of sexual brokenness. Are you, like me, so deeply grateful that the Bible is not a collection of sanitized stories of holy people? The Bible is a collection of stories of ordinary broken people who are loved by God and made holy by a righteousness outside of themselves. That's why I love the Bible, and that's why I love reading the Bible. Because when I go to the pages, I read all about the sins and the sexual brokenness of other people, and I go, whoa, this is not just me. Does anybody read the Bible and say, whoa, this is not just us? This is the story of humanity as a whole. From the very beginning, all of us are sexually broken, but we manifest our sexual brokenness in different ways. And this is the starting point, brothers and sisters, for any meaningful conversation on sexuality. If you're going to address sexuality, you have to start with the reality that everybody and every voice speaking to it is sexually broken. What do you mean, Craig? Very easy for us to focus on the sins of other people, especially the sins we don't like. But any meaningful conversation and becoming a community that's marked by sexual wholeness recognizes all of us are sexually broken. Could you imagine if we made headway in the next 10 years in the church? And all churches, local churches, they began with this. How would we begin to finally be able to speak into 
the culture wars around us. If we all came to the understanding to connect with people on difficult matters, we have to have the first implication, ain't nobody not broken. Secondly, it's important for us to know that sexual wholeness is not moral perfection. Now, this is real key here. Sexual wholeness is not moral perfection. What do you mean? We are incapable of moral perfection in the sense that we are perfect, in the sense that we make no mistakes. Why do we pray prayers of confession every single week at Dwelling Place Church? Because it's a reminder that in any given day, at some point in any given week, we're going to mess up. And so sexual wholeness, don't hear this, right, as I don't mess up. Sexual wholeness doesn't mean I never mess up. Do not hear sexual wholeness as I'm spotless. Do not hear sexual wholeness as I'm sinless. No, no, no. We all make bad decisions. We all struggle at some point in our past with some kind of addiction. We all need various, varying levels of support. And, and so sexual wholeness, listen to me, is not about living something perfectly. It's about wrestling with something faithfully. Not living something perfectly, wrestling with something faithfully. So sexual wholeness says, I need help from my struggles. Sexual wholeness says, I need to reject all the messages I've received from America about sexuality. Sexual wholeness says, I want to live a life that's marked by holiness. But a holiness does not mean perfection. A holiness means communion with God and communion with others. Holiness means that which I've received by faith in Jesus Christ. So listen to me. Sexual wholeness is not about moral perfection. That's number two. Number three, sexual wholeness requires the act of discerning who I give my body to. Discerning who I give my body to. So we live in a culture, whether it's movies or in real life, that does not see the act of sexual union. You just don't see it as sacred. It's so flippantly talked about, and our culture says, if it feels good, why shouldn't you pursue it? And so there's no discernment. It's just, I'm going to be driven by my desires, driven by my passions. But sexual intimacy is such a fire, it is such a force that bonds people together, which is why, again, it needs a strong enough context to sustain it. And that context is defined by God. It's called marriage. Now, I know how countercultural that sounds for me to say that there's only one bond that's strong enough to contain that fire. Listen to me. Sexual intimacy is an act that gives expression to our vows of love that we promised when we got married. You need to understand this. Sexual intimacy in that context is saying with our bodies what we promised we would do with our words. And so every time a couple gets in the bed together to have sex, they in that moment are renewing their vows to each other. And they're saying with their bodies, I promise to love you faithfully and freely through the good times and the bad times. And I'm now giving expression to it, not with my words at the altar. I'm giving expression to it with my body in the bed. And so sexual intimacy becomes, watch this, the expression of that covenant. And it's cheapened when it's done outside of that covenant of love that's expressed in marriage. It's ripped of its power. And so it requires discernment of who I give my body to. Listen, your body is so sacred. Your body, everybody in this room is so sacred that Jesus paid his blood for it. He gave his blood for your body. Don't move into modern day Gnosticism as if he just gave it for your soul or for your spirit. Your body's so sacred that, that listen to me, union with another person can, can, points to the union we have with God. Therefore, you have to have discernment on who you unite your body with because it's not about just you uniting. It's about pointing to another union. Not to be driven by a culture around us that says do whatever you want, but driven by God. Number four, sexual wholeness is about relating to others in ways not given to objectification. Now, I want to read to you a scripture out of the book of Jude, very, very <coughs> sobering moment years ago where I got to visit what was, I guess, in ancient Near Eastern world, Sodom and Gomorrah. Even Jesus spoke about these two cities. But one came to mind out of the book of Jude. I want you to see this scripture with me. The book of Jude, I think it's, yeah, Jude 1 and 7. It says, don't forget the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and neighboring towns which were filled with sexual immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. 
Those cities were destroyed by fire and are a warning of the eternal fire that will punish all of those who are evil. Very, very sobering moment, by the way, to be in Israel and to see that, moment, that, that place in the ground. So let me deal with a very, very controversial subject of our time, and that is this issue of homosexuality. Ruth Graham, before she died and went to heaven, she used to say to her husband, Billy Graham, she said, if God does not judge the United States of America, he's going to have to seriously apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. He got to really, really, really apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. One church, for example, just saw a couple weeks ago in our own community, the marquee, God loves homosexuals. True. And that's a response to other church marquees that said, God hates fags. I've seen one that says, fags die, comma, God laughs. Okay? That's a smidgen of what American Christianity has put out. I think it's a whole lot better message for us to communicate Jesus' love for homosexuals. And this subject has become the talking point of politicians in now every political cycle because there is a massive, look at me church, massive effort to redefine and reclassify homosexuality. And the redefinition is this, it's not a sin, it's a very, very acceptable and very, very normal lifestyle. In fact, a very noble lifestyle. Because after all, the person who is discovering this about himself or herself is simply living in a more honest way. They're more honest with themselves and living as God made him or her. And just like you would never tell a left-handed person to become a right-handed writer, you should never tell somebody who has a leaning towards something sexually to prefer anything but that. And so the message of that community and politicians and curriculums and movies, etc., is this. We will not change our behavior, so you must change your classification of our behavior. You are free to do what you want. We are fr you are free to see what we do as an alternate lifestyle. You are free to see it, see it as sexual orientation. You're free to see it as genetic predisposition. You are free to see it as personal preference. But one thing you cannot see it as is sin. Do not bring God into this. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's just look at it just for a moment. Three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now before you nod too much, look at the next verse. Nor thieves, nor covetous people, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. Boy, that's quite a list, isn't it? What a list. That sounds like God's blacklist. Sounds like a roll call of the hall of shame, right? Well, what's up with that list? Well, what you have in these verses is a summation or conclusion to the previous <coughs> chapter of the book, which is chapter 5. In the beginning of chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul addresses immoral behavior in the church at Corinth. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of sins, but it's a typical list for ancient Greco-Roman culture, and especially the city of Corinth to whom Paul was writing. So these things were rampant in their culture. Let me explain to you. I can't give you much time. Corinth was a very permissive society. It was a very sexually promiscuous society, very similar to America. Years ago in the Victorian era, when Charles Haddon Spurgeon addressed his congregation, he said on one account, he said, all sorts of hearers come to this place. He said, they will be the first to say, the preacher should not mention such a subject as fornication. And he said, my answer to that remark is, then you should not commit such iniquity and give me reason to speak of it. Well, that's how the Apostle Paul felt when he wrote this letter. He says, the kind of behavior was so mainstream to Corinth, I have to give two chapters of my whole book to writing about this. And what he's saying in these verses is this. This is what you guys were. This is what you used to practice. This is your life BC. This is your life before Christ. But now you've come to Christ and you're changed. And so he makes a list. And can I say, everybody's on some list. All sin and all have fallen short of the glory of God. But let's briefly look at it. First one's fornicators. You'll be familiar when I tell you the Greek term. The Greek word is pornos. Pornos. Sound familiar? Pornos, pornography, right? Sexual immorality. We get the term pornos or porneo from it. 
And in this context, Paul's referring to sexual relationships outside of marriage. People who shack up, live together, enjoy sex before they get married. Which, by the way, is probably the defining characteristic of Western culture, correct? Would you all agree with that? That's probably the defining culture. Finding moment, we would say as Westerners, we, we sleep with whoever we want before we're married. When was the last time you ever saw an American film that didn't have that as the normal? People don't blink an eye at it. Next on the list is idolaters. That's the worship of any false god or any false religious system. It's essentially putting at root anything before God. Look at the next one, adulterers. That specifically refers to those who are married, engaging in sex outside of that covenant relationship of marriage. But look at the next two words, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Now, this was not referring to people who live in the city of Sodom at this time. Sodomites had become synonymous with a lifestyle that was very prevalent in Corinth, okay? Now, this is not how all translations render this. The old King James puts it like this, nor those who are effeminate, nor abusers. The English Standard Version says, nor those men who practice homosexuality. Now, here's what's so interesting. These next two terms, interestingly enough, are actually technical terms for the passive and active roles in two males having sex. Now, why does Paul get that descriptive in these phrases? Why would he be so dramatic? Let me tell you why. That was what was prevalent in ancient culture at Corinth. According to New Testament scholar William Barclay, Socrates was a homosexual. Plato was one of the biggest homosexuals. William MacDonald, another scholar, said Plato was definitely homosexual, and his writing of the Symposium of Love was an essay that's glorifying homosexuality. Watch this. 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Caesar Nero, who cut off Paul's head, was an fle- absolute clear homosexual. He had a little boy named Sporus, S-P-O-R-S, whom he castrated as an eight-year-old so he could have that little boy become the emperor's wife. Okay, He did this rampantly. This was rampant in Corinth culture. When Nero died, the boy was passed down as a possession to one of his successors named Otho, for the same exact purpose. Why is Paul bringing this up? Let me tell you why he brings it up. Because it's rampant in Greek and Roman culture. But let me ask you the question, why do these sins top the list? Why aren't the idolater, the, excuse me, the one at the bottom of the list of those who are revilers and extortioners? Okay, I think I have an answer for you. Because there are other sins in life, but these sins represent a moral divide that the other sins don't represent. Now you're saying, wait a minute, Craig, aren't all sins equal? Well, let me debunk something for a moment. All sins are equal, but in one sense, all sins are not equal. All sins are equal in that any sin will separate you from God. All sins are equal in their spiritual consequence, death, but not all sin is equal in moral equivalence. None of you think that sin is equal. None of you do. Lying to someone is not the same as killing someone. You don't think that morally. That's not a moral divide. That's a clear moral divide. The Bible would indicate that the reward, listen to me, degree of reward in heaven and even degree in punishment of those in hell who don't receive Christ is based on the type of sin they're involved in. What do you mean, Craig? John 19, verse 11, Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As if what? He's holding that sin to a higher culpability than any other person's sin. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you pay tithe of tithe to all, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the chapter we're looking at, sexual immorality is one of the only sins you commit against your own body. And Paul says it's so much different. Verse 18 of chapter 6, he says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside or outside the body. Notice that, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So listen to me, church. You and I may disagree over a lot of secondary issues. We might not agree on the mode of baptism. We might not agree on eschatology and the return of Jesus. We might not agree on whether you go back in the baptistry or forward in the baptistry or sprinkled in the baptistry. Some of you think I should be fire hosed, okay? I don't know. But we, we can disagree on those things. We can disagree on the spiritual use of gifts in the church. A lot of churches disagree. We may disagree about the timing of the rapture and the end time events, but this is one issue we can 
cannot disagree on. Why? Because issues of sexual immorality are not secondary issues. They're primary issues. They divide people. They destroy the imago dei. They destroy the image of God in humans. And that's why he says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now the apostle Paul ties morality with entering the kingdom of God as if to say those who practice this lifestyle are simply given evidence that there's been no change in their hearts. If there's a change in their heart, there's a desire to fight against the sin. There's no change in the heart. It's evidence the heart's not actually been changed. So, so I want to give you, they're on your card, real quickly, five kind of truths about homosexuality. Number one, there is not a single passage in either the Old Testament or New Testament that supports homosexual behavior, not one. There are seven texts in your Bible about homosexuality. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Judges 19, Romans 1, 1 Tim- Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy chapter 1, seven passages. Not one of those texts support homosexual behavior. Here's the second truth. Not until the mid-20th century did any single church leader or Jewish leader ever affirm homosexuality. It did not happen for 1950 years of Christian doctrine. It did not. You cannot find it. The Christian ethic, sexuality, gender, reality, ideology has been the same for 2,000 years of church history. That's how recent it is. Number three, every regulation in the Bible concerning marital relations assumes male-female sex. Every single one of them. Number four, Every wise saying in the book of Proverbs assumes male and female sexuality. Every one of them in wisdom lit. Number five, the Ten Commandments assume heterosexuality. Honor your father and your father. Say that. It says honor your father and your, say honor your mother and your mother. It does not. Every commandment of the Ten Commandments in the law assumes heterosexuality. You shall not commit adultery. It assumes that. You shall not, what? Covet your neighbor's wife, right? It assumes heterosexual behavior. So what does this mean? It means God has spoken on this issue. In fact, in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image. God made them what? Male and female. Why male and female? Because he then stated his goal for humanity. He said, be fruitful and multiply. No one in this room will argue with me that it takes a man and a woman to make more people. There's not a person, there's not an atheist on the planet they will argue that it takes a male and a female to make more humans. And the mandate of God is for what? For humans to be fruitful. That assumes heterosexual relationship. And then in chapter two, we're given the same pattern. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There's leaving, there's cleaving, there's weaving. There is a interdependency. Now, all of us, listen, have made it onto a list of some kind. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Everyone has a past. And so listen, sometimes we're, we look at situations like this and we think, oh, well, it could be one of the reasons Christians are more harsh and more judgmental on this particular sin is because we think we're perhaps more righteous and better than other people. But do you remember in Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee, one a tax collector, and the Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially the tax collector. And the other guy beat his breast and just said, God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And that God, Jesus said, that man went away justified. I just read recently there was a son dying of AIDS. He wrote his dad a final letter. Young man writing his final letter to his father. AIDS that he received through homosexual union. Listen to these words. Dad, I'm too weak to write. So I've asked Kevin, that's his brother, to write this for me. Since you never phone me and you hang up on the phone whenever I call you, there's no other way for me to say goodbye. And that was the last communication attempt a son made with his father. Listen, if you claim to be a Christian and you once practiced these things, that's understandable, but you can't be a Christian and still practice these things. You cannot. You cannot. It's the truth of God's word. And listen to me, it's the dividing line of our day and age where I don't fear you as much as I fear God and standing faithful before the God who's given us truth in his word. We have to remain faithful to God's ethic as it relates to what he communicates for human flourishing.
So number four, again, I'll wrap these up. Sexual wholeness is about relating to others in ways not given to objectification. So brothers and sisters, we're not, we're to enjoy communion with God and communion with one another, created to have relationships that are marked by dignity and respect. But we live in a society where using people is the norm. Listen to me, and I know this is a lot, but just follow me. I just, I'm going to land this plane, but I want you to hear me right now. We have been shaped in a society, especially men, to believe that our sexual desires must be met however we decide. And so we've been discipled more by our culture than anything else. To live beyond this, to live in a way that's given to objectification is essentially saying what Jesus said when he talked about lusting in our hearts. So a Catholic theologian, his name Richard War. He says the real problem with the sin of lust, I think this is fascinating, y'all. He says the real problem with the sin of lust is that you create relationships in your head and that destroys American culture. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. He says that the dangerous reality when we see the impact of pornography in our culture is now humans are being formed to create imaginary relationships in our head that impact our ability for genuine connection to other human bodies. And so often, he says, we think the problem with pornography is that you're seeing naked bodies. He goes a little further than I would. He said, I don't give a rip about you seeing naked bodies. He said, of course, that's a bit problematic, but the real problem is that we are reducing human bodies to tools and objects. Now we're seeing a woman as less than human, and that's the sin because she's made in the image of God. We're seeing her now as an object for our fulfillment. We're seeing him as an object for our sexual desire. That's the sin because we're made in the image of God. And so in this respect, we're invited to a sexual wholeness that's what? About relating to other ways or others in ways that are not given to objectification. Not to using, but to union and communion. Number five, sexual wholeness is oriented around seeing God as the source and end of all my longings. What do you mean here? God's given me desires and my desires point to God. God is the beginning and God is the end of my passions. God is the beginning and the end of my longings. God is the beginning and end of everything inside me. God gives me the desire and then essentially God says, I want you to be in these relationships that point to me. Craig, I've given you sexual desire for your wife. Now I want you to be in relationship with your wife so that your relationship with your wife points to me. I want to fulfill the desire I've put in you, which is why lovemaking, y'all, why lovemaking in marriage and the way we connect to, to one another Singles, listen to me, is to point to our relationship to God. Marriages are to be icons and windows that point us to another dimension. And anytime we believe that something, material something or relational something, is going to satisfy the deepest longings of our soul, it is a recipe for so much discouragement, disorientation, and disillusionment. And what the church has done for 20 years is said, why don't you just get married, singles? And if you get married, all your longings and desires will come to an end. If you're married, you say, that ain't right. I actually have more desires now than I had before I got married. I got more desires, more stuff has been ignited in me now than before I actually get married. Because no human being can ever satisfy satisfy the deep longings of your soul. So we don't tell singles to get married and your longings will go away. No, your longings are meant to point to an icon and a window of a God who wants to be united to you. And in the meantime, we are called to be people who connect with one another. Y'all, in my marriage, we have deep bonds of connection to one another, yet I'm never going to satisfy the deepest longings of Meredith's heart. We're going to be so disoriented and so disillusioned, and we're going to spend many nights crying because I can't fulfill the desires of her soul. And she can't feel feel the desires of my soul. That's not what marriage is about. We're pointing to God, a relationship that's supreme. Number six, the gospel is to make us more sexual, not less. The gospel makes us more sexual, not less. Now, I think you understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying the gospel is to make you more sexually active with whomever you want. Some of people are like, this is a good church. I appreciate this church. <laughs> I appreciate this church right here. Now listen, what, what we're saying is the gospel heightens your awareness that you were made for communion with God, you were made for communion with others, and we're called to pay attention to our bodies in the gospel. What? We're called to pay attention to our cravings, pay attention to our passions, pay attention to our longings. One of the reasons we're so big at Dwelling Place Church on getting people in community, connecting in smaller groups, is because we were made to know, know others. You can't come to a church and truly be known in this way until you connect. And so we create environments in which you can know someone, grow in the depth of love, 
and the gospel at its core is to make us more engaging sexual, not less. The gospel means our Lord Jesus Christ became human. We often think that somehow our bodies are less than our soul. Come on, Kobe. That our body is just something temporal. And that every passion and desire comes from our bodies. It needs to be rejected. That's bad teaching. You remember when God saved us in Jesus Christ? He did not just save our souls. You know what else he saved? Our bodies. How do I know? Because at the end of the story in the Bible, the end of the story is not just us ascending and playing on a cloud with a harp, some kind of ghost-like experience. The Bible promises that at the end of history, we will be resurrected bodily. Did Christ come to save our soul? Yes. Did Christ come to save our body? Yes. He came to save all of us. And so listen to me, right now we're called to discern what it means to cultivate this sexuality, this deep longing, this deep connection, which means I'm listening to my body as well as what the gospel calls us to do. And lastly, number seven, the gospel offers good news to those carrying shame. Some of you watching online, listen to me. Some of you listen to my podcast. Some of you in this room, you carry so much shame. Shame because of things you've done. Shame because of struggles you've had. Shame because of what's been done to you. You carry it. It's your everyday reality. When you look at your own body in the mirror, shame. So much shame to the varying degrees. And yet the beauty of Christianity is that God has taken on shame on his body so that we don't have to carry shame in our bodies. It's the good news of the cross. Something has happened in Jesus Christ that he takes on our sin. He takes on our shame so that we don't have to live in shame. But we can live what? With varying degrees of freedom because of what's possible in his name. And yet we have to call it for what it is. So many of us are shaped by shame. I think of an image that I came across in a theology book several years ago that depicts the shame in the garden. And I thought it really captures profoundly. Would you look at this image with me as we close? Some of you, when you think your body has literally been like this on the right, when you think about all the struggles and all the things that's happened to you and all that you've done, you feel like in your body curling up in a ball, avoiding connection, connection with God, connection with others. And this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as a picture of our own lives. Now, look at that image with me. What I love about this image is he placed lights on the left as a picture of God moving towards us. God's always moving towards us with light. God's always moving towards us with love. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? This is what God asked you today. Where are you? I'm looking for you. I'm looking for you, son. I long for you. Where are you, sister? Where are you, daughter? Why are you hiding? And can I tell you, church, in Jesus Christ, we see how that light on the left became flesh and how God reverses the curse in the garden. Watch this. For in the garden, Adam and Eve, they hide behind a tree, naked, covered in shame. But in Jesus Christ, look how the story flips. He hangs on a tree and conquers shame. Watch this. Adam and Eve hide. Jesus hangs. Adam and Eve are naked. Jesus is naked. Adam and Eve are covered in it. Jesus conquers it. And we gather on Sunday to worship and proclaim the good news that in Christ Jesus, we have been forgiven. That in Christ Jesus, we are made whole. That in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. And for some of you, listen to me. This has been your existence when you think about your body, when you think about what you've done. And I'm telling you this morning, God is crying out to you, saying, where are you? I long to be in relationship with you all. Where are you? Why are you hiding? And I want my relationship with you to inform the rest of your relationships. And that, my friends, is the beauty of saying yes to Jesus. Yes to Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me across the room. I want to pray a prayer over us. And I want to ask you just there where you're seated to ask the Holy Spirit, what are you specifically saying to me today? What are you saying to me today, Lord? And just trust Him to speak. God, as we bow our heads, 
close our eyes and we focus on you. We ask that question. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? What do you want to do in me? The beauty of the gospel is God's taken on our shame. <coughs> and that kindness comes to us and leads us to repentance. Some of you, though, you've been so stuck for decades, years. You've been living in the starvation diet. Maybe you've been living in the fast food diet. I want to tell you today, Jesus wants to meet you, heal you, set you free. Or whatever you're saying to us, we just respond. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.